I'm Justin. And I'm Blake. And this is the How Do You Figure podcast. Blake, who is our guest this week? Justin, today we are joined by Jonathan Alexandrados, a non-binary professor and playwright in New York City who writes about toys. Jonathan, how are you? And thank you for doing the show. Ah, thank you for having me so much. The question of how are you is so loaded these days, isn't it? Like, uh, ah, you know, I, I feel like it's just a, it's more a sound effect these days. Like, ah. There's also a very weird, like, normally I say that and people just say, you know, fine and okay. And now I'm really like, and you're good, no fever. Everyone's healthy. Everyone's doing all right. We're working. We're good. Yeah, thankfully. Yes. <laughs> thankfully, everybody uh, is good. I, I actually am, you know, certainly thankful for that. So, Blake, did you get any toys this week? I did. And once again, Justin, like the last few episodes, Amazon dropped it off right before we started recording. Uh, to go along with my DC McFarlane new obsession, I got the infected Superman figure. That's the first of the Build-A-Figure wave for another one of those evil Batmans that I enjoy and Justin is confused by. So that's also from this metal thing. Uh, I think so. I believe that that's the to fight the evil Batman who's been Jokerized. Superman has to become Jokerized himself to infiltrate the operation. These are all very so real that's a words. Jokerized Superman. I thought yeah. that was a bizarre. No, no, he's infected with Joker. Oh, gotcha, stuff. gotcha. Oh, now I see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know the science behind it. <laughs> I just know eventually we're going to give him to a uh, very good actor and we're going to make a very average movie, but it's going to make a billion dollars. Have you done the thing where you buy the three Robins to get the three different Robin heads that are... Uh... No, I think if I can find it, I'll be happy with just one, but I do really want that Robin and I want to build that merciless Batman figure. Yeah. But it it's crazy to me that they put a like big body of a Build-A-Figure in a chase variant figure that you now have to, you're just going to have three of these bodies laying around. He should almost be his own part of the line without one of those, you know, to help me out. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the many things we can lobby against Todd here. <laughs> Are you there, Todd? Sweet Jonathan. <laughs> Please just make this merciless figure easier to get. I don't know who you have to call. It's weird that they're $25 instead of 20 Hey, that's the direction we're headed in. I get it. Times are tough. Just you to know my you... theory. Well, the $20 figure will be the $30 figure in a couple of years. Oh, yeah. We're, uh, we're marching headlong into that. Mm-hmm. Justin, did you get anything this week? I didn't. I... I'm back not leaving the house, so my toy hunting days are on hold for a while till this thing calms back down. Um, yeah, I know. Weird, right? I don't <laughs> I, I didn't get anything. Usually I'm Sorry. <laughs> uh Jonathan, did you end up getting anything new this week or anything fun? 
I did. So uh, I can I can pick up for Justin on that one. Um, I actually uh, did get a few things, um, but I pulled two of them. I, I pulled out uh, one uh, new thing and one sort of vintage thing that I that I got that came in the mail. So the new thing is this. Uh, so this is part of the uh, exclusive Star Wars Black Series uh, Holiday Edition Stormtrooper line. So this one in particular is the Amazon exclusive, uh, which is basically a Stormtrooper and a Christmas sweater and if you can resist that then i don't even want to know you like i think this is just so darn cool it's got a porg in it come on i mean these are great so i uh i have orders out there for the whole line of these and uh but this is the one that that came most recently so i'm really excited about that i love those i really hope this starts a trend and other companies start doing like holiday themed figures like that like i know in the past like there was a Ghostbuster set, but they just had like hats. Like, I feel like up until now, the answer to holiday blank has been, oh, put a Santa hat on. Them. But that's what I want. And I want so much more of that stuff. Yeah, I was amazed when people in some of my action figure Facebook groups were like, oh, I can't stand them. Why would they do this? And I'm like, first of all, you don't have to buy something if you're upset about it. It's very easy to save $20. I love saving $20. Two, how can you hate these? They're great. And they've made so many Star Wars things forever that whatever hole you have in your collection will be filled eventually. That yeah. train's not slowing down. I was I was comforted by the hate because I feel like if we ever reach an era where the toy groups on Facebook are happy about something, then we know the world is ending. Like they have to be mad. And I think that that's fine. <laughs> This is very true. I've I've not seen a more volatile group since the midnight opening of the Last Jedi. <laughs> I'm just as confused now as I was then by that backlash. Um, and if I may, just real quick, because it segues us, I think, kind of nicely into the the topic du jour. It's the um, this is the vintage thing that I got, which is Artillatron from Power Rangers Turbo. Uh, so that's the, the carrier Zord from that show. And, uh, inside I, I do have my, uh, my Zord, my Megazord, uh, parts, but, uh, yeah, I was cleaning that up last night. So I figure I'll just show up the, show off the, uh, the chonkiest of boys in the Power Ranger. Uh, yeah, line. that is fantastic. <laughs> and really. Before we dive fully into Power Rangers, is that a Toys R Us tattoo? Yes. Yes, I got it when it closed. (laughs) Wow. That is so cool. I can't believe I didn't think about doing that. I I asked myself what makes me happy every time I look at it, and I was like, that R does. And uh, that's how I knew I wanted to get it tattooed on my body forever. That's so awesome. Did you get it before they went away, or was it a... It it was like right... Uh, right, pretty much right when. So, like, I think it was just a few days before the official like cut cutoff. Great, man, that's great. Sorry to throw the flow off, but man, I had to ask about that. That's awesome. No, of course, happy to talk about it. Yes, yeah, like, I'm glad you caught it, Justin. I would, I did not see it. <laughs> I can see that R from miles away. Blake. <laughs> it was our lighthouse um, for so many years. Yeah. <laughs> So our topic this week is Power Rangers, and it's something that I don't know a ton about. It's one of those toy lines that I'm kind of, it's kind of a gap in my toy collecting. And these are the episodes of our show I like the most because 
I love to hear about lines that I don't know that much about. Um, so Blake, I'll kind of hand things over to you because you're more the Power Ranger guy. Oh yeah, I love the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. It was one of the first friends. It was, like, hit me right at the right age, right? I was like four in 1993. So it just was right at that moment where I was sort of transitioning from animated to live action media in my normal life. It was action packed. It was coloring. Amy Jo Johnson. My God, that was my awakening. <laughs> um and everything else about it. I mean, the show just covered so much ground so quickly. But, uh, Jonathan, you are the expert among us. The, the history of this really starts with the Super Sentai series. Uh, what are your... Yeah, in the, in the strictest sense, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the way that I always like to talk about Power Rangers is I actually like to go back to uh, Japan in the Edo era, so like the 15-1600s. And the reason I like to start there, obviously well before TV, and I know like a bunch of listeners right now is like, oh, it's going to be like this. All right, never mind. Um, but no, it really is interesting because during this time, Japan was essentially in isolation. So they start to tinker around with clocks and they make these really ornate, ornate clock pieces that are um, just all, you know, cogs and, and purely status symbols. Out of that, they learn how to make these wonderful automata uh, that are just wind up, you know, same same idea as a clock. You wind it up and the, the cogs kind of start spinning and it does stuff. It would be like these little robotic things that do stuff. And if you know Power Rangers, you might be able to see where this is going. The start of a robot culture in Japan essentially starts there and continues to grow. Once World War II ends, Japan is kind of left with a bunch of essentially tin that's kind of left over. So they start making all of these tin toys that are still in the tradition of those old sort of wind up cog driven toys that, that got so much attention centuries before. Um, out of that springs media to support it. And one of those in the 1970s is Super Sentai. And that, you know, obviously takes off uh, and continues to, to sort of run as a, a live action show. Um, but in the 80s, that's where a really, I think, formative thing happens in the U.S., which is basically when Harmony Gold decides that... Uh, Robotech or Macross in Japan was worth bringing over here and kind of redubbing, not necessarily for kids, but for a teenage audience. So the idea that you could get teenage audiences into television programming with these kinds of little, slightly more adult stories um, kind of starts there um, in, in the most major sense. That, to me, the idea of taking a, a Japanese show, essentially just redubbing it calling it something new and putting it on in the U.S. Uh, is, is something that paves the way for them to do exactly that with Power Rangers in the early 90s. Uh, it's the same process, essentially. You're just cutting up Japanese footage. In that case, you're adding in some more you know, American shot footage to make it kind of make sense. But um, you're then releasing that for about the same audience. I mean, it was important that they were teenagers with attitude. That was the essentially the crowd that you were pandering to. Well, not pandering to. I mean, it, it works. Like, <laughs> we're all into it. So uh, I'm grateful for it. But um, all I mean to say is that I think when we study the history of Power Rangers, it gives us the opportunity to talk about something in toy culture that extends back hundreds of years. And I don't think we give that enough attention, um, that there really is this extensive culture uh, and history to it. 
Um, but yeah, Sentai uh, is certainly, you know, a good starting place just for kind of the, the history of the show specifically. Um, and then uh, it's uh, Zoo Ranger, which becomes dubbed into Mighty Morphin Power Rangers here. And uh, the rest, as they say, is, is history. They kind of do that model uh, up until very recently when Hasbro's kind of decided that, no, we're going to start making our own content. Which I got to tell you, I liked the old content way more. <laughs> Me too. Me too. And, Let's and just... if, I, if I could add, like, I, while I love Power Rangers, uh, I love Sentai. Oh my gosh. I mean, some of those stories are so, I mean, they're moving, they're adult, they're uh, shocking. Uh, it, it, they're great. I mean, if anybody's listening, it's like, oh, I haven't really checked out Sentai. Check it out. Um, it's really cool. Shout Factory has it all on DVD and it's up on the streaming services in various places. It was one of the first kind of franchises that inspired something I loved that I tracked down to really get to know. And I think part of that was in like the early thousands when I was getting into anime and video games and figuring out all of this, this merger of like Western and Eastern stuff and then found that, connected it to Power Rangers and tracked it down. It really became the bridge that started me even in movies when I found something like The Ring going, well, who, where was the original one of this? It's over here and it's so much crazier. And it's interesting how to your point, we had this very adult ideas and themes. And then we kind of, I don't want to say watered them down, but watered them down a bit when we brought the Power Rangers over and fostered it into more of it. It launched Fox Kids. Like it really was the thing that started that in the nineties. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting to me about this, like, you know, I don't know much about Power Rangers, but as you know, I, have an encyclopedic knowledge of professional wrestling and the same thing goes with pro wrestling like in the 80s and 90s in japan it had way more adult themes it was and still to this day uh the writing and the storytelling in japan is so much deeper than it is in the u.s and we end up taking their style of pro wrestling bringing it here and watering it down for an American audience. That's fascinating that it works kind of like across the board with popular culture. I mean, it, it happened in Star Wars. It, it's everything traces back to these old myths and legends. Uh, it's great that you bring up the old tin toys too, Jonathan, because I'm curious how that then influenced Power Rangers toys here in the U.S. If you see mm -hmm. any combinations of how we were making toys and how they were making toys and if that fused together in the beginning i would say it's sort of the contrary of that bandai america i think moved away from a lot of the electronics and such that were in the japanese um, toys so for example uh in japan um you would find that for example the falcon sword from um from mighty morphin power rangers had like an electronic function like you could push a button on it it made noises and uh and everything when they bought it brought it to america they took that out there were actually a lot of uh, electronic functions that kind of came out of those toys when they migrated 
um, to the U.S. So I think that uh, the history in Japan with stuff like diecast, with Chrome, with sound effects, um, a lot of that stuff got stripped away when they were brought to the U.S. Um, surely just for cost effectiveness reasons, but um, but also because, I mean, in the U.S., we had a different toy buying culture. Like when you look at stuff that starts with Barbie and G.I. Joe, you're not really expecting a ton of like lights and sounds and such. So you could kind of get away with that. Um, after... I mean, I guess, you know, in the Power Rangers line, they, they do start to embrace some of that. Uh, obviously, the Red Zeozord uh, kept its punching ability that was electronic and obviously the weapons and such. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that if we're talking about this comparison between the tin toy history uh, in, in Japan, we actually see the U.S. kind of move away from it in, in uh, ways that are interesting. That's for It's crazy that we did move away because i feel like as soon as the 90s hit so many toys that i had growing up including power rangers were very light up all of a sudden like laser tag came around you then also even had like the video game boom that was happening start to kind of show off more of a digital idea Mm -hmm. i think that then came along into toys suddenly everything i was buying uh, those Phantom Menace lines all had that com chip tech piece. So yeah. it's funny that we were moving away from that and then something like Power Rangers showed up that even just when the Zords show up in the show are so light flashing and bombastic and big that we almost had to like course correct, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I think in a lot of ways. I also think that the regulations on U.S. toy companies are stricter than they are in Japan. So, for example, if you buy the Power Axe, the the Japanese version of the Power Axe from from Zoo Ranger, uh, you'll find you can essentially cut your finger on the plastic that is on that blade. (laughs) Uh, I have it at home and and, and, uh, at my my dad's house, actually, and and, uh, you can. The U.S. version of it is like way duller and way softer. So, I mean, there are these things I think once you bring a toy to the U.S., you just have to do in order to make sure that it conforms to various U.S. standards. That being said, um, certainly electronics are electronics and and you you can figure out ways to incorporate that However, um, you may have to change certain things about that when you switch from the Japanese uh, installation of those electronics to the U.S. version of them. And that itself could have been too, um, too expensive uh, for them to, to reasonably do. That's true. So I how do... long? Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I do remember that having the American battle axe and it, that plastic kind of almost starts to bend like left or right or indent yeah. and even like the... Uh, I'm sure it has a better name, but the Green Ranger's dragon knife. The dragon dagger, yeah. The dragon dagger. I don't know why it, you know, the thing that it is. <laughs> Even that, like, mine starts, like, wilts at the tip and just get really sad looking. <laughs> but I 100% would have cut myself if that was any sharper. I'm like, yeah. I, was, I was always running my finger on those blades. I would have been diced up. Well, and that, that in a way gets back to the more sort of metal aspect of the Japanese content. I mean, I don't think in a U.S. show you could really get away with somebody saying, go to hell and then fighting literal Satan on a kid's show. In Japan, you can. Um, I also think Japan um, has an advantage with uh, Zoo Ranger and, and really all Sentai um, in a way that we don't. They have a really... Um, strong sort of culture around like mascots and the the yukai for instance the this idea that there is always sort of a monster or a mascot kind of representing a thing so you have this whole 
extensive history of monsters to, to kind of draw from and update and use in this show. Whereas when we bring them here, we just sort of see like Goldar or something. And like Goldar is just sort of a monster in the show. But um, in the Japanese content, there's more of a history to say like, oh, this actually appears like in this cultural text from X number of years ago, um, which I think is is really fascinating. The closest thing I think we've ever even come to that in the West is just like, Maybe Judge Dredd, obviously British, but like in Judge Dredd in the comics, there was uh, one where they like fight Ronald McDonald. Like that would essentially be like kind of uh, the type of thing we'd be be looking at if we had a, a similar sort of culture. Yeah, most of our mascots lean towards consumerism <laughs> rather yeah. than, and part of that is is because, you know, we came here and did all the things that we did and colonized and created and most of even like the religious imagery of western catholic culture doesn't quite have that same imagery at all it's all they're all human and humanoid so it's it's funny that when you get down to those it the mascots we do have were built for sports teams and fast food chains same mascot like i'm thinking about the power rangers fighting gritty (laughs) <laughs> and brian cranston would play gritty and i would yeah. watch that episode i would watch that all day long and I, I think it's important too to recognize that like in in japan we see plenty of instances where a mascot will stem from an older tradition but will be used commercially and i think that that's something that we don't do usually um with our mascots like the pillsbury Doughboy, that's created by an ad exec, you know, working for this specific company. In Japan, sometimes I think we see examples of like, oh, here's this 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 sort of mythological entity, and we can kind of take that and now use it to sell tuna. Just like a how how long were the Power Rangers around in Japan before they came to US? So it started in the 70s, I would say 75 thereabouts. And uh, that's when Sentai uh, started. The, uh, the specific Sentai, Zoo Ranger, was a product of the late 80s there. Um, and basically what happened with that was uh, Haim Saban sort of went over there uh, after being this, I mean, if you read the, the I'm, not, I'm not sure how much you folks know about him, but if you read his, his life story, it is a fascinating life story. We're talking about a guy who uh, put a ton of money into uh, bringing um, like orchestras to Israel. And uh, the, the one that was going to be like the, the thing that was his moneymaker, like his biggest like orchestral concert was, go- was set to happen on the day that a war just happened to break out. And so it didn't happen. He lost a ton of money doing that. So he got into the business of um, selling like theme songs and stuff. And then he would just sort of buy up whatever he could find. He was in Japan flipping through the channels. He sees this thing. It's like mildly entertaining. Um, at that point, what he actually was watching was the series right before Zoo Ranger, which I think was called Ninja Sentai Five Man, something to that effect, and um, basically discovered like that that specific content, while it was exciting, wasn't exactly something that they could transfer into a kids show. But the next series, Zoo Ranger, was, and so he took that, brought it to the U.S., started to like overdub it, called it many different things. Uh, Phantoms was one of them, uh, many different uh, titles to that show. Uh, and essentially was shot down by every kids show channel executive that listened to this, except for Margaret Lesh, who at Fox Kids was the person who brought us like Batman the Animated Series uh, and Power Rangers and like took these chances 
that paid off massively, massively. I mean, toy companies, you know, toy stores didn't even really invest that much in Power Rangers product when it first started. The toy store that did was Toys R Us. And they found that they got hugely rewarded for that when Christmas rolled around. And literally everybody was going to Toys R Us. And for a while there, the only way you were going to get one of those Power Rangers 12-inch figures was like in the parking lot of the Toys R Us by paying a guy $100 to get his. It's so crazy thinking about this franchise as a time when people wouldn't risk it because I, I just grew up with it. So in my, my brain, I'm like, well, it, it was always huge. It was omnipresent. It was like, it's like imagining the bulls without Jordan. I'm just like, no, no, no. I grew up in the nineties and that's when time started. Yeah. I'm ashamed now to admit that I may have flipped a couple of yellow and pink Rangers that year. <laughs> I worked at a comic book store and uh yeah, I uh I was able to uh sell a few of those that I picked up at Toys R Us to some parents. Wouldn't do that now. I don't believe in toy flipping anymore. I was a confused youth at the time. Changed your ways. <laughs> I think the statute of limitations is over anyway, so I don't think okay. anybody can hold it against you. Okay, good. Got to cancel Justin on the How Do You Figure podcast for selling Yellow Rangers. And rightfully toys. so. I I would cancel myself. I feel horrible about it all these years later. Don't scalp toys. Well, I mean, anybody who waited this long actually was probably well rewarded. You can get them now for about five bucks on eBay. So I think <laughs> you're, everybody is set. So then let's talk about this first wave that came out. And maybe I have my history wrong, but the first ones I remember are the eight-inch figures in those big boxy boxes that made them pop out. That's what I'm thinking of. Yep. That's it. That's exactly it. Yeah, I think I said 12-inch before, but uh, eight-inch is is correct. Eight or nine. For a second, I was like, there were bigger Rangers I could have had. I get in ripped off. They they were uh, they had for a while these uh, now they're they're fairly hard to come by but they're like plush and they're they're you know much much bigger uh, rangers that were out around that time but as far as like the the thing that people bought yeah it was the um, it was the eight inch figures um, that were really well articulated I mean that was kind of the thing that shocked me about them was that I could actually move the fingers and stuff uh, that was that was something that was exciting. Um, I'm actually, as we're talking, we can keep, kind of keep talking about this. I want to pull up my, I have a bunch of these Tom Arts uh, action figure guides from the early 90s. And one of them has a really interesting, yeah, here it is, a really interesting write-up on the the Power Rangers that talks about it as if it's just not going to work. Um, so they they say things like uh, these five dinosaurs. So that was the other thing. Part of the first wave was the Megazord and the dinosaurs. These five dinosaurs are transformers sold separately, which they were not. You could get them all in the same box, which combined together to form Megazord, your basic deluxe robot, not sold separately, which also comes as a smaller scale action figure. And it goes on and on and on to say it will be hilarious watching parents standing in the toy aisle trying to sort all this out without the benefit of the toy demonstrator and a 20 minute presentation well guess what we did it like we we figured it out uh it was fine um so yeah this is this is a picture of kind of that what they were selling so yeah the eight inch figures are up here 
you had the the equally eight inch size villains um then you've got the different um sort of megazords that are uh part of that so you you had the megazord broken down by individual zords you have the dragon sword in there um you have a misnamed goldar which was called dreadwing in the original ad not uh, a bad name though <laughs> it's not it's not um and titanus of course um and so that was your first wave. That was your first wave. Uh, so you had the Megazords in there, plus those those figures you described. And so these big triangular boxes they almost had. When you kind of get into the marketing of toys, do you think this was part of the strategy to have them stand out? Because I feel like a piece of marketing a lot of people don't ever really do is thinking about the product on the shelf and making it pop. Yeah. Definitely. I think that was absolutely um, a piece of the marketing. Uh, you know, before that, the figures that were that size or slightly bigger um, were in boxes. I mean, you know, rectangular boxes. And uh, that being in a triangular shape, which uh, had all of the, the kind of showed you the morph from human to, to, act, to ranger on the actually from human to ranger to zord, which didn't make much sense because they don't actually morph into their swords. Yeah, it was um, a very anamorphs type box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to say it. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like it stood out in, in ways that I think are really important. And the, the triangular box is something we can't over overlook at all um and the scale too there you didn't really have figures of that size in america at that time you didn't even really have like five inch like they were mostly five to, to three and three quarter inch um so that eight inch really like jumped off the shelf which is interesting because Japan brought us the 3.75 inch figure with Microman, and then now it blew it up again with Power Rangers, which is kind of fun. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there was a lot about it that I think, so. and and I mean, it had a good blend of stuff we don't really recognize, like the Power Rangers, but also stuff that we do because we could kind of connect the Megazord to Voltron, which was something that people were already kind of familiar with. So you're like, oh, it's like Voltron. Okay, got it. And uh, it gave us enough to sort of feel kind of comfortable with the line. Yeah, and I think too, even the having it be eight inch, I, you've like unlocked memories that I forgot about. Like I remember feeling like they were so special because they were bigger than my star wars or thundercats or turtles figures where it was like oh these are this is it like this is how people feel when they get a cadillac <laughs> um there was so much to it then that made it feel so unique the megazord was something that was huge and i'm wondering if you feel like that type of marketing and promotion differentiated it from everything else going on or was there anything else kind of trying to do what they were doing well, I mean, I think that a lot of what was going on around Power Rangers was still sort of mired in this risk that was around the product. So I think a lot of the marketing that was there was essentially designed to keep it as cheap as possible. I mean, a lot of people thought this was going to fail. So stuff like the the boxes, stuff like the, the actual figure molds, which were just the same as the Japanese ones, um, they were cheap. And I think that was an important part of the, the marketing before the figures were really released. Um, and then, of course, it gets released and this sort of thing becomes iconic and other things about them become iconic, too, like the head flippers. I mean, head flippers were not really a huge thing before that. Um, there were some figures, of course, that you could sort of transform in ways. But 
nothing quite like that. And and now, you know, we say head flippers and every Power Rangers fan kind of knows what that is. So And then you and and head flippers went into other lines too. There were X-Men ones yep. and yeah, it's now kind of like a standard version of a character that you do in a toy line. It was so yeah. funny because I can't think of any other brands even outside of toys that marketed itself with a part of the title. Like they sold the Morphin aspect of it in such a, a unique way with the head flippers and the Zords and having all the Zords together like that. But it's funny that you say that it's about cost and it being a risk because I'm like, well, it was a genius move to put all the Zords together. Whoever had that was like, oh, they were just, they were cutting back on cost. They, they didn't want it. They thought it was going to fail. <laughs> it was I mean, genius from a cost saving perspective. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think so. And and that uh, once that that became the hit that it was, they started licensing that stuff to just about everything you can imagine. I mean, if you could put a Power Rangers sticker on it and sell it, you were pretty much able to after that, um, because anything that just said Power Rangers was going to sell, uh, and that brand became the, the selling point. That's yeah. That's that's when you know you have it. When you have cars on the four hundred five lined out outside of Universal City to meet your cast, you've made it. Um, so then, so how did they? How did we get to the name Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? That's a good question. So yeah, as I as I mentioned before, um, they went through a few different iterations of that. Um, some of it is actually based in the Japanese show. So like Zoo Ranger already has the Ranger in it. Uh, so I think they were able to kind of transfer um, some of that. Um, in the Japanese version of this show, um, it was closer to like Dino Rangers as, as kind of a more literal translation, I guess, of it. Um, but they added power because, and I think there are a lot of reasons for, for adding the power in there, but, um, I do know that of that time, there was a lot of research that showed that once you give kids power, all of a sudden your product becomes a lot more attractive. So like the fact that He-Man says, I have the power is really important because kids don't have power. So as soon as you give them power and you have something there that gives them that, then they want it. Uh, so that I think became a really key part of that specific marketing. And as far as Mighty Morphin, uh, I mean, Morphin was probably the riskiest thing because like nobody really knows what Morphin is, but I think that they were kind of banking on that bit of mystery to kind of be intriguing. And I think it was like, I remember early on, I didn't know what Morphin was. And I asked my dad what Morphin was and he didn't know. And so it's just like, okay, uh, I guess we'll just figure it out. Um, and then of course you grow and you kind of learn, okay, morph to, to morph to change. Uh, fine. But um, it, it was a genius kind of combination of um, mystery plus power plus stuff that was in the original Japanese show that came together, I think, to create that title. It's also interesting because there's so many incredible <laughs> reasons that you just put out for why I would have that title. And I've never really thought about it before. But even now I think about the theme song and I connect it to Turtles. And I'm like, I wonder if a part of them too were like, Give them a couple adjectives. That the turtles have a lot of adjectives, and that yeah. song pops. Yeah, and sure it, enough, we hit it again. Well, I mean, seeing as Saban wrote that song and like is is was a theme song guy, like that, I think was is absolutely right. Like, I think that there was uh, already enough to show that uh, the sort of longer titles with those adjectives in there could work. 
So my last kind of big question with the marketing, and then we'll move on to our own enjoyment of the toys. Uh, when we think about marketing, we of course think of target audiences, secondary audiences, third audiences that they might not know exist. They traditionally, as everybody here knows, primarily target to their first audience. Toys, I feel like, had a thing in the 90s, and it might have started earlier, where suddenly it was like, the boys get marketed to the toys. But Power Rangers was unique in that it was a little bit more diverse, even if it was as simple as like, the yellow ranger is Asian and the black ranger is black. And it's not great, but it's more than other shows I was watching had. Do you think their marketing was effective in getting people of all genders, ages, ethnicities, or did they bungle some of it? I actually think it was effective. I mean, I, I think that you're absolutely right to sort of indicate that we that being effective doesn't mean that we can't critique it and we can't sort of break down some of the choices that were going on in there, um, specifically the way that, yes, the Black Ranger happened to be a Black person. Um, but outside of that, I think that it did mean something actually to see all of those different races on the screen um, and to actually have Power Rangers that were women and... Uh, in fact, in the the marketing of the toys, there was stuff in there like dolls that were specifically marketed towards girls. Um, my one of my favorite Pink Ranger figures was the one that has the interchangeable outfits and the the helmet that you could take on and off. Um, and that was, I mean, that was specifically marketed towards the the girls market. I mean, the gendering of toys, of course, goes back, you know, to to basically when Hasbro invented the term action figure for GI Joe. But uh, and that would be 1964. So this had been going on for a while, and it had been working. But um, I do think in the Power Rangers uh, sort of model, you do see an acceptance of a wide range of people. And I think that that gets proven today when you see the fans of the show. I mean, the fans of the show are from all over every sort of identity spectrum you can imagine. Um, you know, I have my reasons as a queer person for really liking it, which we can talk about later. But like, I think that everybody has something about themselves that they saw in the show who is a fan of the show. Yes, very. Was there a uh, a commercial or anything that you still remember that really like popped out when you think mm -hmm. of these? Yeah, I do. I, I so I remember the original commercial for those eight inch figures, and I remember the way in which uh, they were presented in that commercial. So imagine, if you will, uh, lots of smoke. Right on the there's lots of smoke on the ground. The ground's kind of rocky, uh, sort of a bluish background, maybe night. And then there's a there's the hand, the hand that was always in these commercials, descending one of those eight inch figures down onto the screen, almost as if coming from space. And then you know there was the music going on, and the figure kind of lands into the into the frame and uh then there's the the other rangers kind of join in and and uh it it kind of gives you this sense of something new has landed in the toy aisle and it's now your job to go out and get that and once that happened i was like yes please like this is what i want um my uncle says that he uh paid uh, literally $100 on the secondary market back then to get a Blue Ranger to send me for Christmas, which I'm very grateful for still. Uh, and I still have it. It's up there. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I totally, totally remember that marketing. I mean, yeah, that, it's funny because I, I don't remember that commercial. Like the show was so much the marketing for me that like I just went in droves for it. But 
any of yeah. the imagery with just the handout and the background was what I was like, I need to be that. I yeah. can morph it. It almost oh, hit that like Spider-Man theme of like, well, anybody can have the mask on. Yeah. Well, exactly. And that, that I think is really meaningful. Cause I did, I did want to be under one of those helmets and like, yeah, it, you could be anybody. I mean, it, it just gave you the power, which is great. So what were some of your favorite Power Rangers toys? The first line, any line you want, wherever it is. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think when we talk about favorites, I, I definitely love the Zords. So like I love the Zords even more than I really liked the, the Rangers, although I liked the Rangers fine. But I was always sort of like, well, if we're going the, the Zords anyway, right? Like that's how virtually every episode ended. It's like you would be, you know, the normal high schooler and then you would be the Power Ranger when the, the battle got turned up a little bit. And then it was make my monster grow. And then you got to the Zords and the Zords would take care of it. And so like I wanted the Zords. Um, so I remember, well, and I mean, still my favorite, uh, of those was the thunder megazord. Like I love the thunder zords the, the best. So like the red dragon and the, the blue unicorn and the, the yellow griffin and etc. I loved the way that megazord looked. I loved the way those zords looked independently. I thought it was cool that the red one could transform into that secondary mode where it was essentially its own sort of warrior type zord. Um, I thought that was really cool. Um, so that, as far as a favorite, I think would probably be mine. I, I really, really, really love that. The Thunder Megazord, just awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it is the Zords. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I had all of those. I had the Dragon Zord. But my, my favorite thing I had, and it's because I can remember the story, they made all of the weapons and you could like hold them and fight with them and swing them around and the dragon dagger i remember going to toys r us with my dad and him i I think he went there before i did and like they were out and we were like oh they're out and he was like well let's go back and i found out that like a day or two ago he had asked the guy to like hide one (laughs) and like in the store was almost like check check behind that Go check over there. <laughs> Until like I, and the store was closing. So it was like my dad, this employee and me and the employee, I'm sure now just like, come fuck on guys. <laughs> but, but I, and then I like the next day, one of my neighbors dropped it and the coin popped out. And I was just like, that's it. You can't play with my toys anymore. And I popped it back in and never told my dad. <laughs> and I just remember whenever they would, those neighbors would come over being like, did you bring your own things to play with? Because <laughs> that, you lost that right. <laughs> <laughs> that dragon dagger, you're absolutely right to point that out as an amazing toy. That was, see, my, my story of the dragon dagger is not as happy. Like I, I had a friend who had one and he was that kid who had all the toys and I would always want to just play with his and I never really could. And I just wanted one because I was not a musically inclined kid, but I was like, I will play that dragon dagger because I can summon a Zord with it. And that's what I want to do. Um, but I, 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 I bought all the ones since then that came out for like the legacy collection and the lightning collection and all that stuff. But uh, the original eluded me as a child. Oh, it was, it was great. But it's like I said, it had that plastic that would start to kind of wane on the edges, which now I'm like, ah, that adds to it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I also loved, and I think it's because they were closer to being like the scale of the Megazords, those little, they must have been four inches. They had the plastic base 
they were like, oh, sure. First wave. Yeah. And yeah. Tracking all of those down with my poor parents. <laughs> just Well, and yeah, I mean, now there's, I mean, there's collectors who are really trying to do that because the third wave of those was never officially like released outside of like a few of them in the UK. So that like Aisha was in that there was a Lord Zed in that there was a Falcon Zord in that. And those are like really tough to find. Uh, but yeah, of the, of those other ones, that was the only way you could get a Balkan skull. That's true. And it, I need a Balkan skull of the lightning collection. <laughs> Me too. Yes. <laughs> I need that to pack immediately. Justin, I'd like to save this for the quiz, but I won't. Balkan skull were not <laughs> villains of the Power Rangers. They were villains of the teenagers playing the Power Rangers who would be bullies at this high school. And every episode they'd have their like, like the trombone they follow Otis around with in Superman, just the <laughs> And they'd always get some comeuppance in the final battle, whether it was just like mud on them or something, but it just a delight of two characters. The Rosencrantz and Guildenstern without the actual wittiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They're just, the right kind of just like I would love like it's probably be a con exclusive some like New York or San Diego gotta get bulk and skull but that would sell so well though I mean I I feel like yeah like give us a bulk and skull two pack and you know if you want to make an exclusive make an exclusive of like when they became chimpanzees and turbo you know which was ridiculous but like <laughs> yeah there's a lot of stuff that that line I haven't bought any I just pre-ordered the first one from that line that I'm gonna get and I won't spoil it until i'm quizzing justin okay but now i'm like all right i'm all in <laughs> this one villain they made and now i gotta go get all the mighty Morphin power rangers but well yeah and we were talking about rita before but i mean this is the lightning collection rita and i mean we've never had a rita oh. there was a rita prototype that was going to be released early on in the show but it never was the she was part of that three inch uh figure line um, but she never really came out as as a full fledged action figure of her own until that I think twenty eleven ish line that put her out that did not look really anything like her. Imaginex did a few, but I mean this one has like cloth and you know you get the 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 wand and everything. I mean she just looks great, and she is the main villain of the show. So like why it takes us this long to get a, a solid Rita, I don't know. But... I feel like in the nineties I was always tracking down villains. I feel like there was no real toy line that did a good job of getting the villains out skeleton warriors yes i'm just gonna say not to make it about skeleton warriors but skeleton warriors that is all they released more or less yeah it was it was always finding somebody for them to fight like i could never get the putties and goldar and this and you just would you know you'd have to get creative and cross them over with other things I mean, it's telling that in that ad we looked at before, they didn't even know what to call Goldar when they were marketing this stuff. So like, yeah. I love, I, my favorite part about old marketing in the 90s across any platform is whatever they would just have to go off of like images. Like there's a lot of old video game cabinets that are like, I, I, they didn't tell us what the Koopa was going to look like. So I, I just paint something on there and we'll <laughs> cross our fingers. They're like, this is the best. Whatever. They're like, I don't know. Maybe Pac-Man has arms and a mustache. Batman's got a gun. Fuck it. Like, <laughs> so then now, oh, we're adults, kind of, in air quotes. And 
we're still mark- having toys marketed to us. So what are sort of the differences you see outside of just the playability of it, of like marketing a, a Power Rangers line to an older collector now? Are there challenges or differences in it or is it all nostalgia away? <laughs> well, I mean, now it's it's actually split because the Beast Morpher stuff is being marketed to, to kids and there are some uh, Power Rangers, even Mighty Morphin stuff that is marketed specifically to to kids and, and, and younger. So like there's, there is the Imaginex stuff that's like the preschool age kids. And so they are kind of keeping Mighty Morphin and some of the other lines as well as Beast Morphers really relevant to, to that audience. So when you're thinking about them, them, you're focusing on stuff like uh, not so much articulation. Articulation like can sort of uh, fall by the wayside. Uh, details, so-so. But it's more about like sometimes the, the accessories that it comes with or... Um, you know, not, not even so much what it does, because when we were collecting them, you know, the head flippers and like the buttons on the back of all of them that made them do different things, that was important, uh, I think, to the 90s toy. Now that becomes less important, I think, for both markets, the, the younger kids and the adult collectors. I mean, my Rita, like, doesn't really do anything like in terms of you know a button or anything like that but i mean she's got the cloth accessories she's got the the detail the the paint applications the articulation so these are things that i think work really nicely for older collectors because when we were collecting those toys didn't really have that like accuracy wasn't quite the goal back you know, in the 90s, it was more like, let's just make it do something fun. Um, now it's like, yeah, 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 we know that that happened. Let's try to make it something that's really like spot on accurate. And then, of course, charge a lot more for it. Well, yes, that's the real trick. <laughs> I also even remember in the 90s, like the thing to do to resell the toy was like, make it shiny. And they just, Power Rangers was so good at being like, a wizard is here. And now the Zords are different money time (laughs) well taking one out of the transformers playbook there i mean it's like whenever they needed more money they're just like hey let's repaint optimus again come on guys like we're just gonna make some more money um and yeah power rangers certainly did that um i know exactly what you're talking about the the movie edition for the 1995 movie of mighty Morphin power rangers did not actually look like they did in the movies they were just like chromed up versions of what they looked like on this show and we all bought it. Oh, they looked great. I remember yeah. seeing that movie and being like, they've never looked better. Yeah. Look at them all shiny and chrome. The two places you could go for movie accurate figures was McDonald's, because you get those McDonald's uh, cool little you know ones. Or if you were in the UK, you mailed away for them from Kellogg's, or you actually found them in the Kellogg's boxes, because oh. they, they actually had little, little two-inch figurines in there that looked just like they did in the movie. Yeah, those McDonald's toys were... The best. I it, I feel like we don't get, and I don't, you know, I don't buy Happy Meals. I'm a vegetarian. I barely ever even get fast food. But I just feel like that kind of pack and rush doesn't happen anymore. I feel like Power Rangers was one of the last, like, come get the there's, best toy. There's finally, <clears throat> excuse me, there's finally a new Happy Meal toy coming out that I will be buying. It's the first one in a while, but they're making Happy Meal toys based on Disney amusement park rides and I can't pass those up. So I will be unfortunately eating McDonald's. <laughs> you can buy the toys separately. Months. I just want to say you can buy the toys separately. Don't let them tell That's you. That's what I'll be doing. <laughs> They're about 250. 
They have a button. It's on the register. All they have to do is push it, and you can get as many toys as you want. Um, but, that. <laughs> but that sounds incredible. I mean, I've been really addicted to like the new McDonald's, like uh, the the Marvel ones that they've been doing. But yeah, I mean, I think to to Blake's point about like the the real rush. Um, yeah, I think that that makes sense. There was like in the '90s that sense of in McDonald's you could sell not just the Happy Meal toy, but then also a toy that you had to pay extra for to get. And people would still buy that um, in addition to the mugs and the, you know, all the other stuff that they were doing for mm -hmm. different uh, properties. So uh, that was, was a lot of fun. I mean, that was just great. Um, and I, I have that whole uh, wave of those Power Rangers uh, figures uh, from that era. And I, I just, uh, I love them. So you still have the whole collection then has nothing in bag. Beautiful. <laughs> I love it. This, yeah. The lightning collection is incredible. So, do you like the direction the Power Rangers is in now? In well, toy-wise, I don't know about franchise-wise or both. Yeah, so so toy-wise, um, I'm intrigued. Uh, I, I like the Lightning Collection. Um, I actually feel like I like it a little more than I liked the Legacy Collection, which was sort of Bandai's last um, sort of hurrah for the property before they switched over to Hasbro. Um, what I like about Hasbro is that they are, they're making the body types, I think, a little bit better. Like, there's no real reason to make a Red Ranger that's, like, roided out, you know, because that's not really what they look like on the show. Um, so I, I really welcome body types that are a little bit more true to, to what they were. Um, I, think that, I think Hasbro is doing that. Um, I, I'm a little sort of... I don't know what's up in the air for me is like the future of these movies. I'm one of the few people that really liked the, the, yeah, thank you. Excellent. So we both liked the 20, whatever, 17 movies. 17. Yeah. I thought it was awesome. Me too. Me too. And I loved sort of the direction that was going. So the fact that they're going to kind of reboot that again, I, you know, I could be great, but like, I, I don't know. I really liked that one. So you mentioned, and this will, this will probably be my last question, and we'll uh, do some fun and games with Justin. You mentioned the toys in the franchise being important to you as a, as a queer individual. Uh, is there a reason why that connected with you in that way? Or what is it about the franchise that has that? Yeah, so I think that um, what a lot of folks do, I think regardless of who they are, is they try to see themselves in the properties that they love. And whether that's actually in the text or not, we all have sort of these ways of writing ourselves in, regardless of, of who we are. So I think that um, for me, you know, playing with gender and thinking about my own gender um, has always been something that's been kind of a part of my life, even before I really had language for it. And I guess the way that I sort of work it into the show is through through characters like the Yellow Ranger, through characters like um, the uh, the White Ranger. Who I mean, this is this is kind of interesting just from a sort of queer perspective. But um, in the in the show, Kaku Ranger, which is where they took a lot of the footage for for like uh, Power Ranger season three, and then Alien Rangers when when they took that footage out the white ranger was uh, a 15 year old girl um tommy was still playing the white ranger for a little bit of that time before cat came in and, and was like the pink ranger that kind of took over that shogun zord but um when tommy was playing you know tommy being the big buff like white ranger like macho guy would get in his zord that was still taken from the show where that zord was run by a woman 
And the Zord was kind of doing all these wonderful, like graceful, elegant, swan-like movements, you know, and you think about Tommy in there and you're just like, oh, you know, like as a, as a, as a kid, he's like, you know, eventually going to come into their own as a trans individual. Like there's a little bit of a transness that I am projecting into that. And I feel uh, at home by, uh, with that. I mean, for example, too, with the Yellow Ranger, uh, you know, in, in Zoo Ranger, the character's name was Boy and was actually a boy. And uh, when that footage then comes over here, it's Trini and, uh, you know, we kind of go with it. Like there's, again, I don't think there's any like transness that is textual. I think it's all just sort of writing, writing yourself into the show. And you're like, that's a fun little gender moment um, there. And, and I think uh, you can choose to go down that road or not. Like it really doesn't make any difference. I just think that it offered these wonderful ways through its cheapness to kind of invite in people who may not have been written into the show, but could easily play with some of the elements of the show, which at the end of the day is, is all we're doing as kids anyway, regardless of who you are. You're taking these characters, you're playing with them, and you're making them your own, whoever you are. And I support that 100%, regardless of whether you're sort of in the text or not. That's awesome. Yeah, our, our friend Joan has almost like a very similar story about feeling that way about gremlins, that mm. like she... Gremlins was the first time that she saw a character transition. And it was especially seeing Greta the gremlin, seeing one of these gremlins transition into a female gremlin. And it's something that to this day like means the world to her. And it was it written that way? Not necessarily, but she was able to see transitioning in popular culture, even though it wasn't specifically written that way. And I love that. I Hopefully, <laughs> now we'll start getting things that are actually written that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think the thing is, too, like if you start to involve all of these fans who are of various different identities into the creation of new media for the show, you'll actually get that content just organically. I mean, it is, it is important that the Blue Ranger in the 2017 movie had autism and was on the autism spectrum. Like, I love that, the, that people with autism have that representation in Power Rangers where it should be. Uh, and I, I hope we just lean more into that. Well, it's fun. It's interesting because you bring up, you brought up rather, the idea of having it say power in the title and giving power and a voice and representation and all this stuff is becoming more and more important every day. And we're seeing it, even when we don't see it in the media, which Hollywood and other places are behind, you see it in the audiences and what they're begging for. And even somebody like myself, who's just a, a white, straight, cis male, it's pretty boring. But <laughs> it's like, I also want to see these different things and this inclusion. And do you know how much I've had in my life? We, let's spread it around a little bit. And I don't it, want to it keep seeing Exactly. I mean, it makes everything better. I mean, even, you know, like you sort of mentioned like white cis male is as sort of, you know, boring. I don't necessarily think it is. And, and frankly, I think you're the opposite of boring for the record. You both are. But like, well, thank you. Also, I mean, the, the great thing about it is, um, you know, there's a poet, Gregory Pardlow, who talks about how uh, the thing that like the way white 
supremacy and white privilege like hurts white people is that it makes you think it's all about just your whiteness. And if you're white, you're just like boring. But like, like that's not necessarily the case. It could just be that your story is not about your whiteness. It could be about your class. It could be about your struggle with addiction. It could be about your struggle with something else. And I think that those the once we start to highlight diversity, then we really dive into how diverse diversity actually is. And we can start to get that representation out there regardless of what you look like. And if Power Rangers is setting itself up as a place that's already launched on diversity, then that is a prime location to bring in this sort of diverseness of diversity. That was all very well said. I'm going to now play a little fun and games. Our fans of the show may remember (laughs) uh, Justin in earlier episodes has asked me several wrestlers that I don't know because I don't know wrestling very well. An odd blind spot in my 90s growing up-ness. So I'm going to do the same now with these Power Ranger villains, because Power Ranger villains, I feel like, are some of the kookiest things out there. And I'm going to start with an easy one, Justin. I'm just going to give you a name, and I think what I'll probably do is have Justin guess, and then Jonathan, I'm going to have you describe it to him what the correct answer is. Okay. Uh, and I have everything if, we know, if there's one where we're like, ah, it's tough to do, but Justin, okay. I'm going to start with an easy one. And this is the first lightning collection toy I'm going to get because it's great. The pumpkin wrapper. Okay, well, I'm assuming... Hmm. See, immediately I was jumping to like a guy with a pumpkin head, but I have to get out of that mentality and put myself into the Power Ranger world. So now I'm thinking it's like a giant pumpkin uh, with like a face on it. Um, that's where I'm going with. Jonathan. Well, I think that you're, what we have to keep in mind is that Power Rangers is a show that often speaks to our basest impulses. So the fact that you had a direction you were going and then you were like, eh, it can't be that straightforward. Let's go somewhere else. <laughs> you were actually like on the right path before. And, uh, so, so like, let's think about uh, a a person with a pumpkin head. Um, interestingly, the face is upside down, and uh, so you've got a typical pumpkin. The body is like kind of a greenish sort of uh, jumpsuit spandex looking thing with different like vines and stuff, and uh, he wraps. I didn't see that coming. (laughs) I did not. I did not connect that rap with that rap. Ah, you thought he was like wraps people in paper. (laughs) Yeah, or pumpkins. Here, I'll show you. I'll show you a quick little Google image search if my share button wants to work. Here's the pumpkin wrapper in his glory. Oh Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. First, and then I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll do another uh, pretty easy go. Tell me about Eye Guy, Justin. Well, now I'm assuming uh, Eye Guy would be the exact same thing, just like a guy with a giant eye for a hat. You know, you're you're headed in the right direction. The only thing is that you just you need more eyes. So like the body itself is made up of eyes. Um, and then there's an eye on the face. 
and the fingers are eyes and the uh, pectorals are eyes that launch out of the chest when a button is pushed. Oh, oh that's great. Um, so basically as many eyes as you can put onto a body that is vaguely humanoid, that is eye guy. Um, <laughs> eye guy. Don't know if there's an eye gal, but <laughs> there is an eye guy. All right, they're going to get a little bit harder now based on names, Justin, but this is one of the most iconic Mighty Morphin Power Ranger villains. If you had to take a guess at Goldar, who we may have seen briefly on this very podcast. Okay. Now, I have seen in the past a Power Ranger character that has, like, a gold body. And then some sort of like alien head face, I think. Is, is this the one I'm thinking of? You're you're pretty you're pretty close. I don't know how else you'd get some of the details without me guiding you. Um, what kind of a, do you? What else would he maybe have outside of just a regular body? If I'm thinking. Is it kind of like almost Egyptian-esque? Am I on the right track? I mean, yeah. You should all share the screen and just show you. If we think about Goldar, (laughs) his body might be made of... Gold. Oh, silver. No, yeah. yeah. It's a trick. <laughs> That's the complex one. No, yeah, it's totally, uh, totally gold. Um, I, I guess as we, we'll pull up the maybe the image, but um, the, the face specifically is that of more of an ape. Uh, so if you think about like the the apes or the, the, the flying monkeys in Wizard of Oz combined with just lots okay, of Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, in there, you can see from the 2017 movie where Goldar is basically just a big lump of gold. Yep, that was probably my, my least favorite change. <laughs> yeah, me too. I did like the movie, though. I did, too. I did uh, too. Let's do... This one's going to be really tough, Justin. I think I'm going to throw three more at... Yeah, you know what? I'm going to do... Yeah, three more. I'm curious if you're going to throw out my favorite one. If you don't, <sighs> I'll put that one out there. Oh, then by all means... How's Finster? If we had to take a guess at Finster. Okay, well, I'm imagining there's fins. Um, or maybe not. Maybe Finster. Finster. Okay, I'm I this is I'm doing the He-Man math on this. And if this was like a master's character, it would just be a guy with a bunch of fins. <laughs> Jonathan. Well, I, I have to say, if you're wrong, it's only because this show has taught you to be wrong. Like, you're using the right formula. You're just coming up with the answer that's not quite right for Finster. Um, now, Finster, though, in all fairness, is a tough one to, yes. to, to describe. I guess you would say, like, think of, like, a really old man with like kind of rodenty features 
It's almost a little like never-ending story meets Yoda. That's the great way to say it. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's see. Who else? Finster actually has my favorite, one of my favorite stories in the comics. So Finster apparently like is the, he's the guy who makes all of the monsters for Rita. That's, you know, like his job. But the reason he does that is because he originally like tried to bring his wife back in like this weird, like, Frankensteinian experiment and essentially failed at that and was able to convince Rita was able to then just convince him to be evil and uh, it worked because he lost all faith and goodness at that point. Well, no wonder all of his monsters get defeated so easily. (laughs) (laughs) It's all making sense now. (laughs) This should be the movie. (laughs) All right. This one uh, is going to be like a two for one squad and baboo. Squat and Babu. We can start with the question of which one do you think is shorter? <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> well, now I'm assuming it's Babu. <laughs> uh, could they possibly be... Now, uh, first of all, I'm assuming they're like kind of wacky characters with those names. Like maybe they're like evil sidekick type characters. Um, are they some sort of ape or monkey type? Uh, I'm Im- so I'm imagining a tall, a small, monkeyish, apeish uh, sidekick, evil villain type characters. Final answer. <laughs> so. I mean, sidekick evil villain, totally on the money. Like, absolutely right. Hanging out in the animal kingdom? Yeah, I think that could certainly work for Squat, who's maybe more toad-like or you know, frog-like in nature. They're both blue. Um, and as far as Babu is concerned, I mean, Babu sort of sounds like baboon, but there's really nothing to kind of link them. They're, they're, um, Babu is, is the taller one. So there's, they're not trying to like pull a fast one in there. Um, what is, is fat and short. Um, but here we are. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah. Okay. So there you go. See, so, so gotcha. Uh, I, I'm trying to see any animal resemblance for Babu. Uh, maybe a bat, sort of. That's kind of, it's almost more like, I don't know, Beast from X-Men and the Dinosaurs from Dinosaurs. Is, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. They that's, don't all just have the name and equal the thing. That's all true. Right. That's a shame. <laughs> or I would have nailed this. Although, this one might. Justin, tell me about the putties. The putties. Okay, so I'm imagining like a race of creatures that are like Clayface from Batman. If if this were the 2017 movie, you would be right on. Oh, that's, that's pretty true. much what they look that's like. That's true, yeah. But you're also not incorrect. They you know, were yeah. made from that kind of material. We'll take a quick little look at them in their uh, in their 90s cheap glory. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, like we don't have the money for Clayface, but we can do masks. We can do masks <laughs> and gray bodysuits. 
And uh, if you notice in the in the pictures um, that Blake is flipping through, there's some with the Z on the chest. That's a really important uh, plot point. So the ones uh, that are just sort of in the regular gray bodysuits, they came first. And uh, the thought was, you know, you just beat them up like regular like foes, you know, just did some karate and they went away. But with the Z putties, uh, the Z standing for Lord Zed, you had to hit them right on the Z in order for them to break apart. And, yes. Uh, if there's one thing to make your villain stronger, it's to telegraph its weakness. <laughs> yes, exactly. And make it really big. Right. Yeah. Make it real obvious. <laughs> It's like, why does an Iron Man cover the arc reactor in his chest? I don't know. <laughs> Iron Man is the best Z putty. He's the most successful. <laughs> I could do Blake, one. I think I did. Oh, is there one more? I was going to say, Jonathan, who was your favorite villain that you wanted to So do? my favorite villain is, is an easy one. I just happen to love this uh, villain, uh, Terror Toad. Terror Toad is great. Justin. I'm imagining a toad. Great. How does this maybe in feel? like a cloak, <laughs> like a toad and a cloak? Maybe. I mean, you are bringing about the point that I think he is basically naked, so that is maybe disturbing. <laughs> actually, he probably should wear a cloak. <laughs> Here, Justin, I'll, I'll, I've yeah, got let me the see image. This terror toad. He's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that's great. So, <laughs> What I love about Terror Toad is you see the ranger's faces on his belly, which means he's eaten them. Like, that is what he does. He, like, eats Power Rangers, and they have to figure out how to get out of his belly. Wow. I love it. Plot. Excitement. <laughs> 90s. Well, Blake, I think all. I did... I think I did better at this than you did with the WWE wrestling. Well, yeah, but there's no wrestler who's fairness. just, like, name plus this... <laughs> Yeah, in fairness, yeah. these make a lot more sense. They're not as racist. <laughs> uh, it, it's it, they're more clear cut, I would say. Where, uh, yeah, I guess that's true. We don't have any monsters called like Hornswoggle or something, right? Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. Unless you have any more. Oh, we're just about up to the time. So, yeah, we should probably wrap it up. This has been fantastic. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, guys, uh, where can people find you? So uh, I'm on certainly Facebook, just as Jonathan Alexandratus. I'm on Instagram as at toy underscore circus. Uh, I'm on Twitter as at jalexan, J-A-L-E-X-A-N. Uh, and I'm on Parlor as... No, I'm just kidding. I'm not on freaking Parlor. Um, <laughs> that is my social. Uh, <laughs> you know, hit me up I, on any of those. <laughs> oh, Parlor. <laughs> it's nice to have a... Blake, where can they find us? <laughs> well, Justin, after they leave us a very nice review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever they are listening to us, they can follow us on Twitter at How Do You Figure PC. They can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash How Do You Figure. On Instagram at How Do You Figure Podcast. And that's it. See you guys next week. <laughs>